Thanks, Candy, for reading our Acts text today from Acts chapter 10. Um, I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to put something in Acts 10. We'll come back to it. But the gospel text this morning, 15th chapter, we kind of pick up where we left off last week with the vine and the branches. Our text begins this morning at John 15, beginning at verse 9. If you're able this morning, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. Again, Jesus is speaking and says, As the Father loved me, I too have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last. And as a result, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I give you these commandments so that you can love each other. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, it is so good to see you this morning on this graduation weekend. And happy Mother's Day to you. Um, at our house this morning, uh, we had a kind of funny thing happen related to Mother's Day. Uh, some of you know, most of Debbie's family lives in Missouri, in the Midwest, and she has um, an older sister and then three younger siblings. Uh, she has a younger brother whose name is also Scott, and then two younger sisters. Her brother Scott is married to a delightful, funny, uh, wonderful uh, woman named Cammie, uh, and um, Scott... Um, kind of botched Mother's Day. Um, so Scott came, had a busy week, came to Cammie yesterday and said, um, babe, I'm so sorry. I kind of got distracted this week and I have not planned anything for tomorrow. So here, here's, I know that you've been wanting some flowers and some hanging baskets. So here's some money. Why don't you go out and get those, right? <laughs> Which this will shock you, did not go over well. <laughs> so Cammie said to him, I am not going to go buy my own mother's day gift. You are going to go get those. And he said, but I don't know any, like, what do you want? What, what flowers do you want? And she said, write this down. Here's what I want. I want smart sallies, and I want three horned whispering plants. So he wrote that down and headed. Now they live in Missouri near Amish country. So they went, he went out to this big Amish nursery. Now, some of you are already laughing, especially my wife, who's been laughing all morning. But if, if you know more than Scott apparently knows, you know that smart sallies and three-horned whispering plants are not real. <laughs> so Scott, doing what only, only a Scott could do, only a, a, a guy could do, goes to the nursery and spends an hour going up and down the rows looking for smart sallies and three-horned whispering plants. And spend an hour without asking for help, right? So finally, once it got to an hour, Scott went to the nursery workers and said, I'm looking for smart sallies. 
three horned whispering plants for my wife for Mother's Day, which was met with confusion. And the worker said, I am sorry, we don't have those. And so he called Cammie on the phone. He said, babe, I'm sorry, they don't have those. To which her response was, that's what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Which led to (laughs) some more great conversation until finally um, the workers had had enough of him and said, sir, I'm sorry, but we are out of those. (laughs) And we are never going to have them in. (laughs) he bought begonias. Oh, so anyway, um, so we've been laughing all morning at Cammie sending Scott on an on impossible mission. So this morning, as we think about the text, I already wanted to think about mission impossible. So some of you may be fans and old enough to be fans of the television show. I have seen the show a few times, but I'm fans of the Tom Cruise versions of the movies Mission Impossible. And there's always two things that made the show and the films cool. The first is obvious, the theme song. Bum, 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 bum. Hey, you got it. Nice. It's not dancing if you don't move your feet. Um, so anyway, thank you for getting that. Um, I thought about replacing Spiegel Lord with that today because it just felt like it would come, but I wasn't sure how to get bump, 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 bump on the screen. But um, anyway, but that always makes it cool. Um, but then the show always begins in the films. It's Ethan Hunt, the Tom Car- Cruise character, encounters some kind of package, opens it up, and there's a video or a, a reel-to-reel tape, and it is this message that says, Ethan, here is your mission should you choose to accept it, right? And then it's always cool. He gets this kind of mission that's been given. And then this tape will self-destruct in five seconds, right? And then it just kind of implodes and blows up. And, and it doesn't really even matter what the rest of the show does. Those two things are so cool. I think that part of what I love about the franchise is not those, just those two cool things. But that is this idea of a small group of people who have knowledge about something that is going wrong in the world about which the rest of us really have no knowledge. But it's important knowledge because that knowledge leads to a realization that the world's kind of in, in trouble. But here is this group of people who have been made aware of that and have been invited into this mission, should they choose to accept it. And that they've been invited to this mission and they have the wherewithal to go out and to fulfill this mission, to, to bring it about. It's risky and challenging, but they can do that. And I find the language, if you choose to accept it, kind of interesting in in the show because I had to Google this just to make sure I would get it right. But there is not a single television episode of Mission Impossible, nor in any of the films, where when the tape is over and it self-destructs and the language is, if you choose to accept it, that any of the spies go, eh, I got better things to do, right? Like, they never say, ah, I don't really, that's too risky, put it away. Like, they always accept the mission. Like, this mission is life-changing, radical. It's, the world depends upon it. And, and therefore, it's almost as though they can't choose or not. They have been drawn into it, and now they have to go do that. And, and even in the films, Tom Cruise's character is trying to retire. He's trying to get married. He's trying to buy a dog. But he keeps running into these packages that invite 
him into this mission, and, and he can't help but lean into it. I think we can read the Old Testament narrative in the kind of lens of the Mission Impossible story, if you'd go with me there this morning. It's almost as though what the scripture narrates is the brokenness that is evident in the world. The brokenness of sin and destruction and brother against brother, nation against nation. And we then all of a sudden encounter Abraham, who it's as though Abraham receives this package from God. It says, Abraham, I have a mission for you should you choose to accept it. You and Sarah will be the father and mother of many nations. Later in the story, Moses goes to the burning bush, and it's as though he receives this package. And it's kind of cool because it's sort of self-destructing. Um, he goes to this burning bush, and there is, in a sense, this package that says, Moses, I have a mission for you should you choose to accept it. My people, your people are in captivity, and I want you to go confront Pharaoh, bring the people out of bondage, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. This is the mission that you've been given. It's really important when we read the Old Testament that we understand these are people who have, in their lives, they have been given this mission. It's as though they have opened the package, if you will, and they've been told, this is who you are, and this is what you are called to do, should you choose to accept it. There is a broken world that is in need of you acting on my behalf and in my power to go and do these things. And so this morning as we come to the John text, I think it's important for us to recognize the disciples already had an understanding of who they were supposed to be in the world. Uh, the disciples did not become people of faith because they followed Jesus. They already understood a story that had captured them and they were part of from the time they were little on. And this morning I want to think a little bit about what does that story look like? What was the story that the disciples already knew? And so I'm going to go through four things really quickly. Here's the four things the disciples knew. One, they, that the world is caught in cycles of sin and brokenness, both individually and corporately. And those cycles of sin are destructive, oppressive, they cause great suffering, and they break the heart of God. That they know this is the story that they are a part of, a world that has turned against the purposes of God and in that process, not only are destroying themselves and the systems and are creating oppression, but it also, like in the Noah story, God looks and says, this is awful. And the text says, and God was grieved in his heart that he had made humankind. And so the disciples understand that. But secondly, they understand that they, like their ancestors, have been rescued from those cycles of bondage and sin and have been chosen and called by God to be obedient to commands that not only give them life, but witness to the possibility of new life in the world. So we've talked about this a lot. It's very important that when we get to the law, the Torah in the Old Testament, we don't think of it as rules in order to get God's approval or rules that we have to follow to get somewhere after we die. But the law is there to give them life. So that as they embody it, as they live it, as they as they put themselves back in the grain of the universe, they live a life that is no longer broken and creating all this fragmentation and oppression. They're now living the life God intended them to have. And as they live that, there will be this beautiful reflection of that life and other nations might be drawn to the light of that life. You with me? And so the disciples already understood that. And third, this calling is hard. In fact, it's bump, 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 impossible. 
and can only be accomplished through God's unique empowerment of his people. This is why it's so important. When Abraham opens the box, if you will, and the message is, Abraham, I have a mission for you. I want you and Sarah to be, to leave all your places of security and be the father and mother of many nations. It's very important in the story that they can't have children. Because this mission they've been called to is impossible in their own strength. When Moses stands before the burning bush and the message is, Moses, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses is like, well, I'm not a good talker. And I'm going back. I have, what I have in my hand is a staff. You want me to go confront the armies of Pharaoh with a shepherd's staff? It's only the power of God at work in them that can accomplish this. And then lastly, they have been chosen to live into this mission. But here's the thing. Like Jonah... Even when they run from their calling, God tracks them down and pulls them back into the story. Every time they get the words, if you choose to accept it, and they say, I'd like to not accept it. Storm comes up, they get thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, and there's a new box waiting for them that says, oh, by the way, if you choose to accept it. <laughs> Many of you know as a college student, I got to play Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof here, which I always joke made me the, at that least at that time, the skinniest, worst beard-growing Tevye in the history of Fiddler on the Roof Productions. But, um, but the lines kind of run through my head still every once in a while, and there's this wonderful line from Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof where he says, I know, I know, God, we're the chosen people, but couldn't you choose someone else every once in a while? <laughs> the disciples know this. They know they live in a broken world. They know they've been invited into a mission to be part of God's redeeming, reconciling act in the world. They know that's impossible apart from God's activity and participation in their life, both individually and corporately as a people. And they also know, as hard as this is and as much as they like to run, every time they run, God tracks them down, pulls them back into it. And so now, if you have the John text open with you this morning... It's as though what Jesus is doing, he's talking about the vine and the branches, but now it's as though he's revisiting that call, revisiting that story, but he's redefining it in light of their experience now with him and the uniqueness of the revelation of who Jesus is, and now all of that story is being retold but redefined in the light of what Jesus is revealing. So in the John text, we get this. The mission of the disciples is connected to the completion of Christ's joy. If you're paying attention earlier, the sin, the broken, the cycles of both individual and corporate sin breaks the heart of God. And here Jesus is saying, here's how you make my joy complete. Here's how you reverse the brokenness, the brokenheartedness of God about the fragmentation of the world. Here's how you lean into this. And this will not only make my joy complete, but this will make your joy complete. Oh, this is going to be great. And so lean into this. Also, obedience to God's commands is embodied in love. Now, hang with me for just a minute. Every once in a while, I, I tell you, it's kind of important to pull the Gospels apart from each other and kind of think about them individually and what they, what they think about and how they witness to Jesus individually. So we're in the Gospel of John. If all we had was John, as I love to say, we would have a very boring Christmas. 
For what's interesting in the Gospels is not only what they include, but what they don't include. So the Gospel of John has no birth narrative. In fact, if all we have is the Gospel of John, every Christmas Eve we'd gather together, dress the children up like philosophers, and they would say, in the beginning was the word. It'd be a delightful Christmas pageant. No shepherds, no angels, no animals, no magi. Just theologians. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Sounds a little like heaven. Um, but, but you get no birth narrative in John. Kind of interestingly in John, if you read the Gospel of Mark, you barely are in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus is delivering people from the demonic. There's exorcisms all over the place in Mark the oppression of people spiritually, and Jesus comes to free them. There's not a single exorcism in the Gospel of John. It's kind of fascinating, right? But here Jesus is saying, here's how you'll make my joy complete. Obey my commandments. But here's the wild part about John. There are almost no commandments in the Gospel of John. Now, if you go to Matthew, commandments all over the place. In fact, you get to chapter 5, and Jesus says, hey, let's go up on a mountain. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill it. So here, listen up. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't treat each other with lust. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Like, there's commands all over the place for several chapters in Matthew. If you want to know how to follow the commands of Jesus, you can read the Sermon on the Mount. There's lots of commands. There are almost no commands in the Gospel of John. And here Jesus is saying, if you love me and if you're my friend, you'll follow my commandments. If all we had is John, we'd have to ask this question, which ones? To which the answer in John is always this, love God and love each other. For John, it's not that those commandments that we get in Matthew are unimportant. It's that in so many ways they can be summed up like this. Love God and love, love your neighbor. And most importantly in John, I would argue we don't get verbal commands in John so much as we get the commands made flesh. The word made flesh. So if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus' commands, in John it means look like Jesus. Follow him. Love like he has loved. And in that way, you will be my friend. Second, and then third or fourth, I don't know where we are. Love is not sentimentality. But it is the costly empowerment of others to live into their God-designed fullness. This is so important. My problem when we read John and we don't get commands and we just get a kind of command to love is love just becomes kind of permissiveness. Love becomes letting each other do whatever they want to and just not getting involved in each other. Love becomes libertarianism. Which is not love, by the way. Which is why Mother's Day is a good day to talk about love. Good mothers are not good libertarians who say, you kids do whatever you want to. Part of what we celebrate on a day like today is how, and I know it, it doesn't always work this way. But in a kind of motherly love, when it's operating the way God intended motherly love to operate, it's this love that has borne this child, has given life, and, and now wants the very best for it. And I got my wife a t-shirt for Mother's Day um, and some other stuff, too. Don't, don't look down on me. But, uh, but we tease her about being a mama bear, right? Like, it's, it's a life is good shirt that says mama on it. It's mama bear. 
there's something about motherly love that is willing, as Jesus says, to lay down its life for the other, right? Some of you know that well. You've experienced that well in a mother. You've lived that well. Again, it doesn't always work that way. But I think it's why in the Old Testament, God will say, can a mother abandon her child? Like love is not just kind of sentimentality or permissiveness. Love is this desire to see the best happen for God in God's children. And for Jesus, these disciples that he has called, love is the desire to see all that God has planned for each of them come to fruition and fulfillment. So Christ lays down his life for the sake of these 12. And we're God's friends. And in the text, what it means to be God's friends is to be let in on the secret. So that we are partners in God's redemptive mission. Jesus says it this way. If you were just my servants, I wouldn't tell you anything. This is when parental love doesn't operate always best, but it's completely understandable. You know those moments with your kids where you say, I'm done explaining it to you? Just do it. Because I'm bigger. And I can ground you for eternity or whatever. Like, um, just do it, right? Jesus is saying, listen, if you were just my servant, I would just tell you what to do. And you would just do it because that's what servants do. It's fascinating, by the way, that in many of the ancient religions, in fact, I can't think of one other than the Jewish faith that understands creation this way, that God or the gods created human beings in order for us to be servants or slaves of the gods. In many global religions, when God says stuff, you just do stuff because God is God. I don't have time to preach all this today, but read the Old Testament sometimes. It's really funny. God will say some stuff, and Abraham will say, but what if we could find 10 righteous people? <laughs> you want to get in the text where God says, who are you to barter with me, Abraham? Right? But he lets it go for a while. Like, we're not created. This is so radical. We're not created to just simply be God's servants. This is powerful. We are created to be God's friends, to be Christ's friends. And in this text, the reason we're friends is because he doesn't just tell you what to do. But Jesus basically says, but I've let you in on the secret. I've let you know that there is a calling that I carry and now you carry. It's a call to be part of this redemptive love, this redemptive purpose in the world that now is happening through me and through death and resurrection and new creation. And as we are his friends then, our identity and purpose derive from having been chosen and caught in the transforming new creation mission of God. So who we are and who we know ourselves to be happens because, in a sense, we open that box and we're given the mission. And that mission defines then who we are in the world and it lets us know what we were created to be. If you still have the Acts text, what's crazy in the Acts text is in John, Peter and James and John, all those folks, they kind of know this already. They know the story is just being redefined in the life of Jesus. But what they know is they were chosen and not Gentiles. And so what we get in Acts chapter 10 is the story of Peter's encounter with Cornelius. And the text that Candy read for us this morning said, all of a sudden, 
Peter encounters Cornelius and what we'll get to in a couple weeks on Pentecost Sunday, the same spirit that was poured out on Jewish believers who are now filled with the spirit in order to be empowered for this mission that Christ has given them. Now that exact same thing just happened to Gentiles. But Peter goes, who are we to say God has not now extended this mission Cornelius, in the sense, to carry the metaphor, has opened the box, and the voice of God says, Cornelius, I have a mission for you, if you should choose to accept it. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the mission. It's interesting when we get to a text like this, especially if, if, if you mean to be Nazarene. The language of chosenness is always kind of tricky for us in this text. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me catch you up just a little bit. So across the history, especially the last 500 years of Christianity or so, there's been a really good debate about how do we understand chosenness or election. So I've told you this story, but when I was a junior higher, um, we lived in Dallas, and my folks sent me to a private Christian school, which was Baptist, because those are your only options when you live in Texas. Um, But it was in seventh grade where I I remember for the first time kind of confronting people who understood a kind of theology of salvation a little bit different than me. And and in particular, my Bible teacher was talking about how God has predestined some for salvation and we're totally depraved, um, that election is unconditional, therefore the atonement of Jesus is limited to those whom Jesus has given it to. And, And when people are given grace, that's irresistible, they can't resist it. And and if they have that, then there's what's called perseverance of the saints, uh, what, what my seventh grade friends called once saved, always saved, once you're saved, always saved. And I kept raising my hand and saying, I don't, I don't know. My teacher finally said, so Scott, your dad's a pastor, right? I said, yeah. I said, what kind of pastor? I said, oh, he pastors a church in Nazarene. And I swear, it was like she had a red button under her desk, and she pushed it, and alarms went off through the school. Wesley alert, Armenian alert. Anyway, um, we got a live one. Um, but I've told me this story. She, she was a great, really creative teacher and had us reenact the Synod of Dort, which is this moment in church history where the Armenians and Calvinists um, had an argument with each other. And I credit her for my initial interest in theology as a junior higher. But I often think back to that time, and I think back to to conversations I've had with kind of the Calvinist, Wesley, Arminian kind of thing across the years. And it always kind of turns into silliness, frankly. So I would say to my friends things like this. Oh, you think God chose you, therefore, you know, you, you got this irresistible grace in seventh grade at some summer camp, and then you lived this horrible life, but you still get to go to heaven? Like, that's, that's ridiculous. Which, to which the response is, well, no, if you live this horrible life, then you didn't really get it in the first place. And then they would say to me, you know, always say to Wesleyans, oh, but you guys think you can lose your salvation, right? I've been asked that question a hundred times across the years. Every time I hate the question. So I always, I just don't like the way it's phrased, that we can lose our salvation. Um, like, I lose my iPhone all the time. Thank God for the find my iPhone thing that beeps at you, right? But it's not like your salvation is your keys or your iPhone or whatever, where you just go like... Carrie, I have my salvation. Have you seen it? Like, did I loan it to you? Um, I saw it. I, I had it Tuesday in my car, right? Like, like, it's such a silly way to think about, like, you lose it. 
And so the response is always, no, we Wesleyans, we think of this very relationally. I know that I woke up this morning still married. Um, that's wonderful, but I also know how to get out, and it's very complicated, and I will know if I did it. Right? Like, it's, it's just not, I didn't lose my wife. She keeps coming home. <laughs> right? Like, um, no alert necessary. Um, but I've been in those debates across the years, and it dawned on me a few years ago, reading scripture, thinking about some theology, reading some stuff, that we were both absolutely wrong. That the problem is we were using words like are used in this text, chosen or elect, and we were making them answers to the wrong question. You see, with my seventh grade friends, we thought the question we were asking is who gets to go to heaven after they die? To which my friend's answer was the elect. And my answer was whoever responds to the provenient grace of God. But the problem is, every time chosen election, especially like in this text, is used, it is, that is not the answer, that is not the question that it is answering. Read the text. Jesus does not say, I chose you because I wanted the 12 of you in heaven with me. The text says this, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Please underline the next line. So that you could what? Bear fruit. <laughs> It's helpful if you have a text. Um, so that you could bear fruit. I chose you so that your life would be missional and fruitful. That the election, the selection of God is not about eternal destiny. It is a question about God is, has a mission of reconciliation in the world and he is inviting us into it. And who is he picking to do that? And in the Old Testament, he constantly picks people we would not have picked if this was our mission. He picks the barren, the broken, oftentimes those who have no ability to accomplish this mission. Why? So that his power could shine through jars of clay. So that those willing to participate in this mission would be empowered to bear fruit that we could not have made on our own, but only by the Spirit of God at work within us. And now, again, back to the Acts text, what blows Peter's mind, he's known since he was this high, he was part of that group. He had no idea Cornelius was in now too. That now this mission has been extended to everyone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a missional box waiting for you to be opened and to hear the voice of God say, Diane, here's the mission should you choose to accept it. But by the way, it's so big and massive and life-changing. How could you ever walk away from it? So let me say something radical today that I think I believe but if not, take it up with Brent. Um, I don't know that you can be Christian without being captured by the missional story of Jesus. You see, one of the things I think happens for us is because we think of faith as a kind of belief system, and I do know this, I don't think it can ever be faith if we know that we chose it. 
as though uh, students come into theology class and as though we line up all the ideas on the cafeteria line. And we say, here's your tray. Let's go through and you pick them out. Because for you to do that isn't really living into a faith that has captured you. It's kind of making up your own faith, right? And so then to be Christian is not to say, well, I believe this, this, and this. But the missional aspect of reconciliation and the world being made into a new creation, that part, I'm thankful I have some Christian friends who feel called to that part. and I might even give some money to help them with that. I'm not sure it's Christian faith if it isn't a missional story that has captured us. That has invited us into the transforming work that the very beginning of God's call to a people was to be the embodiment of that in the world. And now to his disciples, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And here is the mission, should, should you choose to live into it, to bear fruit in the world to be the embodiment of it. And that doesn't mean, Dave, that there aren't people we, who fill that call by going to other parts of the world. Thanks be to God for folks who fulfill that mission with that kind of call. But it means that every single one of us has opened the box and has heard the voice of God say, Here's what I'm doing. And I need you. And I have chosen you. Here's the mission. Do you want in? <laughs> Do you want in? It was so fun. Um, I only got to be part of the first graduation yesterday to see Caleb graduate. But part of the fun of the academic rhythm of life is to kind of send folks out to graduate them off. But I often think Mike Poe spoke for graduations yesterday and, and, and used my line yesterday, he credited it. But I love to say, if you've listened well, and I, I want to think, like, every time a graduate crosses, I want to say, did you listen well? Like, what did you get? If you didn't get anything else out of the last four to seven years of experience. I hope in some ways you didn't get something as much as something got you. Something got you. The vision of a God who loves the world too much to abandon it and gave his only son to redeem it and now has invited us by the power of the spirit to be involved in the reconciliation and the reconciling mission of God's love in the world. And it's far too good of a story to just walk away from. And it's certainly not a story you picked power of it is it is a story that has claimed you. And can I just say, if you decide to live a different story, it's really not so much because that you picked that story, it's because that story claimed you. And you decided it was far more interesting to be wealthy than to be part of the reconciling work of God in the world. Or it was far more interesting to give your body over to sensuality than it was to live the reconciling life of God in the world, Right? And so my prayer, especially for those of you who stood up earlier that are graduating, 
is that you have sensed the opening of a box that has invited you into the mission of God. Boom, 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 boom. And it is not your strength, but it is his strength within you that will give your life meaning and purpose and mission and direction and fullness of joy. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. God, those are such strange words to sing in a 21st century existentialist, individualistic world where we are constantly writing our own story. To sing that somehow blessed assurance is found when we discover that our lives have been bought with a price. Purchase of God. Where the significance of our life is not what we have made, but is the fact that we have been born of your spirit. And that spirit has enabled a fruitfulness in our life that would not happen without it. So much of our life is caught up in a story that says, this is what love looks like when you lay down your life for your friend. So we are those who've been purchased by your blood today. Redeemed. And now we can say, this is our story. This is our song. This is the mission that you have given to us be free from the bondage of sin and death, to be changed by your love, to be instruments of your peace and grace and mercy and reconciling love in the world. Oh. That is the mission that has captured us. It is what you have chosen us to be and to do not because of what we can do, but because of what you can do through us. And so we yield ourselves to that story today. We accept that mission. Make us your people today, we pray. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.